When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Don't Retire, Graduate, the podcast that teaches you how to advance into retirement rather than retreating. I'm your host and valedictorian, Eric Brotman, and today I'm joined by two gentlemen who are going to share their story um, in terms of how they got into the financial world, how they manage assets for clients, and how they've grown into this profession. Joining us from Bay Street Capital Holdings are Ekana Anya Gafu and William Houston. Um, William, you were the gentleman who started this firm 12 years ago. You had supported the largest retirement plan in the U.S., the Thrift Plan, the TSP, which is near and dear to a lot of folks here on the East Coast because there's so many government employees near D.C., of course. Um, William's an accredited investment fiduciary. He completed Wharton's Certified Investment Management Analyst Program, and he serves as the Bay Area President for the National Association of Security Professionals, where he advocates for allocators to engage high-performing, diverse fund managers. We're going to talk a lot about today. Uh, William, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, and William's joined by Ekana. Uh, Ekana Onyagafu is the Director of Planning for Bay Street, and he provides institutions with customized support for retirement plans from development through review and optimization. He's a CFP like myself, an accredited asset management specialist, a graduate of Black Hill State University, and this gentleman managed to, to complete a double major in finance and economics and behavioral science while playing four years of college football. And I, I want to talk about that, too, because that sounds like a very full plate. Ekana, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you for having us. Uh, excited to be here, Eric. So I want to start with a million-dollar question right off the bat. How did you two decide and how did you get into a business where um, you were really, in lots of ways, trendsetters in coming into this business that is grossly lacking in diversity yeah um i mean i i can take it off uh, for myself i uh, going to college and you know really starting to fall in love with what i thought was finance obviously it was more from a theoretical view when you get into the real world uh, but that really always kind of captured my mind of wanting to be a part of that and wanting the information and the knowledge set uh, and so uh, for myself uh, as soon as i was kind of getting towards the end of college, I really started to look towards career opportunities, uh, which I, at that time, really started to realize that uh, it's not easy getting in the career. So uh, I think the first, you know, dozen or so places that I really looked at, uh, they really wanted a license prior to getting in, or they wanted experience. Uh, so I realized pretty much almost immediately that it would be somewhat of an uphill battle trying to get into the industry, um, but I was able to go to the discount broker route, uh, which afforded me the opportunity to get the license. But uh, that's how I, how I personally got into the industry. And, and how long ago was that? Uh, I've been in the industry right now just about five years. Um, and so right out of college, essentially started looking for jobs, uh, actually prior to even graduating, um, really looking for those kind of, you know, quote unquote, Wall Street jobs. Um, and that's where I saw a lot of that uphill battle. Got it. And, and Will, how about yourself? Yeah, on my end, I've always had an affinity to investing. 
When I was younger, growing up, we, we grew up in a, in a small town in Alabama. It's gotten a little bit bigger now, Huntsville, Alabama. Uh, but back when I was growing up, you know, a lot of where we lived was just open space, you know. So I would ride around in the car with my parents and I would always point out things like, why don't we put a McDonald's here? Or, you know, why don't we put a Starbucks here? Why don't we put a, I don't even know, like, you know, why don't we put a Walmart here? And when I go home now, you see those things, you know. And, you know, <laughs> when, I was in, when I was in high school, I would literally leave the school when I found out a company was going to IPO and I would call my mom you know, call my dad and try to get them to buy the stocks, you know. So I would call them and say, there's this company called Google. You know, I use Google a lot more than I use Dogpile. I heard that they're going to IPO. Mom, you should take all of your money and you should buy Google, right? And I came from parents that were teachers. Both my parents were, were educators. And at the time, I didn't understand. I, I thought they just weren't listening to me, you know. So when we see a, a McDonald's or when we see this Walmart come up, I would always say, look, I told you we should do that, you know? And it wasn't until I was an adult where, you know, I realized that this was more a function of, you know, teachers didn't have the sort of discretionary income necessary to actually participate in any sort of uh, large way in the markets, and especially the way that I was trying to ask my parents to, you know, they were, they were, they were used to more traditional uh, funds that were in their 403B, um, and they weren't actually even in a position to allocate to very specific opportunities. So, got it. And it, and, and it, it takes foresight as a young person to to be thinking that way. So some of this must be genetic from either a parent or a grandparent or somebody. Um, it, it's great that it's great that you identified that so young. Um, but getting into this business, what was your entree to the profession? And how much of your experience was similar to Ekina's? In other words, his was 2016 or thereabouts. Yours was earlier than that. Was your experience materially different, or were you also looking around saying, "There's not a, it's not an easy job to get"? Yeah, it was significantly different. Um, again, my parents were teachers, and their parents were teachers, and their parents were teachers. And um, when I was in school at Georgia Tech my father became disabled. And in Georgia, if you work for a year, you're able to, to get in-state tuition. And so while looking for a job for the year in order to you know, reduce the, the burden to my family for the expense of school, I received a job um, doing outside sales I was doing door-to-door -door sales, so I would literally knock on people's doors and ask them if they wanted to like change their phone system to Bell South, right? But this was before AT&T bought them. Uh -huh. And after uh, doing that, I received a, I guess, a phone call or something from an insurance company, and they they asked if I, you know, would come in for an interview uh, after my first year at at. Bell South, I was the number four uh, salesperson uh, in, in the U.S., and I think that was more a function of uh, desperation than it was skill, <laughs> right? <laughs> well, or at yeah. least grit, right? I mean, at least grit. Yeah, I remember the first door I knocked on, it was this old lady, and, you know, I had been practicing my pitch, and, you know, I, like, pump myself up, you know, but I'm going to be able to do this. And she came to the door and I started going through my pitch 
and she cut me off and she was like, young man, where did you go wrong in your life that made you end up at my door? <laughs> oh, no. And, um, oh. you know, I try to keep going through my pitch and she kept, you know, just berating me. Just, just, I just, I couldn't wow. get a word in, you know? And I started crying in front of her. Right? Oh, <laughs> right? no. <laughs> and then she slams the door, right? So then oh, I went no. and I sat on the sidewalk. And I'm sharing this story because it's, like it's like a kind of big moment for me in terms of starting my own business. And I was on the sidewalk at her in her driveway. <laughs> and I kind of came to this point of like, well, am I going to get in the car and go home, you know? Or am I gonna just get up and like go knock on the next door? It was like one of those questions, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I kind of put myself back together and I went back to her door and I apologized to her. You know, I said, you know, I apologized and I told her that I was sorry that I knocked on her door. Um, and I, I would assume that she said, oh, it's okay or something like that. I, you know, the, the, her response wasn't actually what I remember most. Um, right. But I do remember most going to the next door, you know, oh, and yeah. and in that in that career, like the goal on a day to day basis was to get, you know, four or five people to change their phone system. And, uh, you know, I think that was that was the more memorable thing out of the day, like having such a horrific first experience and then seeing the importance of, you know, just getting back up and trying again. And so. You know, I think that really is what led to me, uh, you know, stepping out uh, and, and, and doing my own thing at an early age. That's an awesome story. I, you know, I, I love the grit and I love the resilience and I love that, that moment where you figure, am, is this for me? Am I done or am I going to dust myself off and go get it? And it sounds like you definitely went and, and chose option B, which was good. Um, now, when, uh, when Ekana came to work for you, did you have him knocking on doors just to make sure that he had some of that shared experience? I assume not. <laughs> It would have been, it would, I don't think it would have hurt, man. It's uh, definitely a way to put some armor on your back. Uh, Ek and I and I actually met because I had one of my uh, investment accounts at TD Ameritrade. And, you know, we both, he was working in Palo Alto at the time. I um, had been living there for about, I don't know, four years when he met me. And, you know, kind of to your point, there's not that many... Uh, people of color in in Palo Alto and I had never come across anyone uh, working for themselves or for another firm you know that was that was a person of color and so when I met him I didn't actually immediately ask him to join my firm because I actually didn't think the timing was perfect you know but I did take his information and um, about a year later, I reached out to him when I thought that I was in a place to actually offer him something that was, a, was attractive, you follow? And it yeah, just yeah. so happened that things aligned, you know, Schwab was buying TD, a lot of TD advisors were kind of um, transitioning into other roles, and he was, um, you know, what I thought was, 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 an, was an attractive offer also came with a couple of, you know, incentives that he was... Um, you know, not necessarily going to be able to find by going, you know, from one, uh, you know, large firm to another in terms of ownership of his book of business and, and equity in the company and things like that. So, Ekana, how do you how do you recall those those first conversations um, when you and Will met, and then ultimately when he made you an offer? What did what did that look like? What was you, what is your recollection of that? Yeah, I think uh, initially I was you know very excited. I was getting to know Will. I was like, all right, this guy's 
really sharp. Uh, I just recall thinking, okay, you know, this could work. Uh, and then it came time, you know, for, uh, when we first met to talk about somewhat of the compensation. And at that time, it was kind of uh, not necessarily set in stone. And so I remember just thinking like, oh, okay, like, I, I really do enjoy talking to Will. Uh, you know, I, I enjoy the idea of kind of going on my own. But at the same time, I have a life to live. And uh, I think when we very first met uh, at that time, was doing very well with TV. Um, but, you know, I was still very much a, hey, I like TV type person. And, you know, this is where I'm going to be for a while. Uh, and so, uh, long story short, uh, I, I do recall the very first time meeting him. And I was like, all right, it sounds like a good idea, uh, but maybe just not for me right now. Uh, and then it wasn't until almost a year later that we started re-engaging. And then I was like, you know what, actually, I do think that I could make this work. I think I have some of the connections uh, that could, you know, make this really start to move forward. Uh, and so that's when it became more attractive. I, I think the very first time I was like, hey, was a good guy, uh, nothing negative to say, but uh, it's just not for me right now. It wasn't until probably a year later when, as Will said, you know, he came with, in my opinion, a better offer where I really started to say, okay, you know, how can I make this work? Uh, and really started to kind of strategize of how I could do that. So, so let's talk about um, Bay Street Capital. I mean, you, you know, Will started the company. Uh, Ekene, you've been there now five years. Tell our listeners about the company, about what you do, um, and and the impact you're trying to have um, on not only the industry but on the people you serve. Yeah, and, and I just want a quick clarification. I've actually only been at Bay Street since June. Uh, oh goodness! Uh, All right, 2020, uh, and I had actually been you know, prior to that. I was at TD Ameritrade for about two years or so. Uh, prior to that, I was at Schwab for about three years, um, and then prior to Schwab, I was at Northwestern Mutual uh, for right about uh, a year. Um, and so uh, I've actually, you know, I'm still, you know, quote unquote, under that one year mark. Uh, it feels like I've been here for a while, but uh, I, I am still, uh, you know, in that. Nine got months. it no kind of guessing here <laughs> the conversations i've had with the two of you in the past i would have thought you guys have been working together for for a lifetime you're very in sync so amazing that you were able to do that in in a, a short period of months so so tell us about bay street and tell us about the the impact that you're looking to have not only on uh on the industry but on the the folks you serve you know as a team bay street we want to be the best investment firm that there is Right. So when people talk about the greats and when they're when they're putting these top 10 lists and things together like that, you know, what we aspire to be is the best that there is, you know, and how we go about doing that internally as a team is we're performance oriented, you know, so we work together as a team collectively. Um, we're deliberate uh, in a lot of our conversations and we're thoughtful. Uh, when we're, we're, we're approaching risk. Um, as it pertains to risk, we like to look for asymmetric opportunities. And essentially all that means is we're looking to make investments that have more upside potential uh, than the perceivable downside risk. Um, our strategy we've coined, uh, the way we explain it to people is we invest through the lens of history. So we invest through the lens of history in companies that we believe are gonna outperform the general market. Um, and how we go about uh, explaining the importance of addressing implicit bias in institutional plans is by explaining to you know, larger 
and smaller 401k. It actually doesn't matter whose plan you're looking at. The, the problem is the same regardless. Is, you know, regardless of how well a diverse manager is doing, whether he be, you know, a person of color or a female uh, or anyone who's not a white male, there's a lot of um, roadblocks for them to be added to these plans because there are a, such a small amount of uh, diverse advisors that are advising the institutional plans. And so the reason why, you know, part of the work that we do aside from managing our portfolio revolves around advocating for fund managers is because we realize that if we don't, nobody else is going to. You know, there's never been a scenario at all that we've ever had a conversation with the company and they've said, oh, you know, we're going to decide between you guys and this other diverse firm, right? There's there's just a lot of the other diverse owned firms. They're either fund managers themselves where they're running a fund or they're doing, you know, wealth management, but more so for, for individuals and families, not so much, you know, focused on institutional plans. You follow? I do. I do. And, uh, you know, you... you you raise a, a couple of very, very interesting points, um, one of which is th- that I do think particularly larger institutions and uh, state systems and uh, are, are looking for, um, in a lot of cases, um, managers to create some diversity and having trouble finding that. Um, how, how, how do folks go from being the best kept secret to being a household name? I mean, what is the... Is that a, a 50 year process? Is it a three year? Like, what, how do you do that? Yeah, I think it's with the right people in your corner. You know, there's certain CIOs that they take the, they, they don't just allocate to diverse firms because there's a mandate. You know, they allocate right, right. because, like us, they believe that performance matters, you see. And, and you start getting introduced to those uh, CIOs and to those allocators. Um, and even some of the, you know, larger, more mature firms, you know, that specifically have real programs that are making an impact uh, in the diverse manager space where they're looking, you know, to allocate to first time managers. They're, you know, they're not putting the three year, five year, 10 year, 15 year, you know, sort of hurdle track performance. You know, it's OK to take a $500 million check. They're going to write you, you know, one that's more appropriate for the size of your fund. And, you know, to your point, you work with what you have. You know, I know several first-time fund managers that started a fund with $150 million or more, but I don't know any diverse managers that got that much from one allocation for their first fund. You follow. I've seen guys 10, 15, 20 years of experience before they go out, you know, relative to some of the other first-time managers that I know, and they're still taking a a million dollars here and there. even though they've had, a, you know, a very persistent and a very consistent track record, um, so so and and I think that's what we're what we're looking to address. You know, it's not it's, it's not something that I think has a specific timeline to it per se. I don't I don't say this is something that would be solved, um, but I, but I will say that you know in the industry, especially amongst um, you know diverse managers, you, the the network is 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 growing and it's maturing. And I will say we're becoming uh, more competent as advisors to where, you know, we don't necessarily even have to take everything that, that comes that comes uh, across the door. We're looking to work with the right people and engage with the right organizations who 
we, we, we see that there's going to be a mutual benefit as opposed to, you know how it is, you take that one client who's always calling your phone no matter how, how, how well things are going, it's always too expensive, you see how this. So instead of engaging in just in anything that comes across the door, I think being you know, thoughtful in the type of partnerships that you take and making sure that you're actually working with people who are in your corner is, is, a, is a super big deal. So, uh, you know, at our firm, we have we have 21 people and we hire um, not exclusively, but we hire a lot of young people uh, out of of college. Um, We want them to learn our process. We we don't put them in door to door. In fact, we don't have any uh, young people responsible for business development. We have them responsible for really learning. It's almost like a uh, it's almost an apprenticeship for a period of time with a career track. And we feel that's incredibly important. And we've tried to um, recruit in a way that allows us to have um, a, a, a lot of different kinds of people here. And, and frankly, it's because of different networks, different backgrounds, different experiences, different aptitudes. Um, and, you, you know, for us, it's been extremely difficult just to get um, minorities, um, people of color, uh, women, etc., to interview and, you know, we have finally, I think, cracked the code um, along gender lines. We, I, I think we've worked really hard at that and not on purpose. You know, I, I don't want it to sound like there was some mandate like, hey, we have to do this. That, that's not it. We have eight advisors here, four men and four women, and the women are amazing. And it's not um, that they're amazing for female advisors. They're amazing advisors. Um, so to your right. point, it's about competency, you know. But, you know, we spoke with uh, one of the young gentlemen working for us, and he's a person of color, and I asked him, why, why aren't more um, of your peers? And, and he, he, like Ekina, was on the football team at a local school. In fact, he was a team captain, which, which, which I love that kind of leadership, and we look for those kinds of folks. But he, I said, why, why don't more come into the industry? He says, the industry, he goes, they don't even go to the career fairs were the, the meetings that are around financial careers. It's almost like they think, ah, that's not for me. And he, he would like to figure out a way to change that. I'd like to figure out a way to change that because there's a lot of very talented people who aren't even throwing their hat in the ring. So the question is, how? I, I know what's happening, and you're right. Um, I'm not exactly sure why it's happening, um, and maybe you can shed some light on that, but I also would like to know how we change that mindset you know, amongst young people. I mean, you clearly were were um, ahead of your time in terms of thinking about, you sound like Alex P. Keaton, you know, being 15 and going, we ought to build this over here is not a normal thing for young people necessarily, but they're out there. So why aren't, why isn't this happening? How do we get there? Yeah, um, I, I think personally, uh, one of the biggest reasons why we see a lack of diversity in this industry is because when you really kind of, you know, if you were to look at it from a big picture and say, okay, when are people actually learning about the stock market or when are they learning these finance things? Uh, I would say that when you look at a non-person of color, that generally comes at a pretty early age because, you know, their parents invested, their grandparents invested. Uh, they may even themselves at a young age have invested or at least have an ideal about that. Um, and, you know, I think the study says that the average person takes away, you know, kind of their financial wellness at the age of seven and just, you know, 
point blank period in the average African-American home or just minority home, you know, it's just not the case that finance and investing are being talked about. Uh, even myself uh, going to college and learning about finance that way, my family at no point during my life brought up what a stock is. In fact, you know, I myself, after graduating and entering the career, started talking to my family and I realized that there is a big disconnect. Uh, from investing to what they're doing right now. Um, and so, I mean, I think the, you know, the wealth gap is there. We, we can point that out. Uh, understanding that currently for African American families, only one out of three are actually investing. Um, and so I think that when you don't talk about it from a young age, the interest to be involved there at a, you know, at a point where you're exiting college or even when you're going to college to choose your major, if that's just not there, then quite frankly, um, you know, people aren't going to enter into the industry. Um, and so I think to your point of, you know, well, what can we do to change that? Uh, and I'm a big advocate for financial literacy. Um, and the reason for that is if you start to teach people at a younger age, hey, this is what you can do with your money to maximize. And if you're, you know, this is how you can invest, then the interest starts to build up. And then by the time it is time to choose a career or choose a, a, a major or whatever that may look like, then, you know, in the back of your mind, you're essentially starting to think, okay, how can I be a part of that? Um, but right now, it's just not something that's talked about. And because it's not talked about, it's just not something that people are passionate about. Uh, and with a lack of passion, you see that, you know, what we see now where uh, firms like yourself are, are searching uh, for those minority candidates are, and sometimes falling short. Um, that's my own opinion. Uh, and I think that, you know, when you look at just the when people start to learn about the stock market, uh, it, to me, it becomes very apparent of how that starts to shape itself. I think financial literacy, or to even a greater point, financial illiteracy, is a serious issue. Um, you know, and, and we we've worked on that here as a as a firm. We've we've worked uh, with Junior Achievement. We're actually putting together a financial literacy online course for um, middle and high school students and their parents. That'll be a free offering to try and and teach. Um, you still have to get people to do it, though. You have to get people to to say, "Hey, this is for me," or "This is uh, I have enthusiasm around that." and there really isn't a lot of formal financial literacy education in schools, and there's lots of reasons for that. In fact, we've had guests on the show talking about um, why there isn't financial literacy education in schools, and it's, it's a political hot potato. It's a, it's a difficult issue that really shouldn't be difficult. I've never met anyone who thought it was a bad idea, which is peculiar right. that everyone agrees this is a good thing, and then no one can figure out how to do it. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sad to say we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that we get to um, uh, an extra credit assignment for each of you. And I'm hopeful um, that this can be around um, either um, obtaining financial literacy um, or maybe breaking some type of, um, uh, of diversity trend or barrier for the industry um, and for underserved populations. Um, so, um, Ekin, why don't we start with you if we can, I need that one takeaway from the show, something that someone who listens can say, this is what I'm going to do today, either to become more financial literate or to, um, or to make a difference in what we've been talking about today. Yeah. I mean, uh, for me, uh, I think that the easiest steps, right. When you look at 
the programs that are out there uh, currently. Dr. Jason Otley, he's running a program in D.C. as well. Um, but when you look at the programs, a lot of it comes down to funding, right? So you can have all of the good intentions in the world where you're saying that, hey, I really want to make a positive impact. Uh, and if you're someone who can, I think that an easy way to start to, you know, kind of provide this financial literacy to the masses is finding an organization that you support and trying to figure out how you can be a part of that. Um, because you'd be surprised oftentimes, you know, you don't have to have a finance career to be able to speak, you know, kind of intelligently about what to do. And so because of that, uh, I say all that to say that if you find an organization participate, uh, whether that's uh, via donation, whether that's donating your time, but finding local organizations and by, you know, they're definitely out there that are really trying to move forward the financial literacy programs as a whole. Um, I think, you know, once again, you know, if you're trying to look and say, how can I best move forward and, and cut down some of the barriers, uh, I really think it comes down to the education piece and the education piece at a young age. And so finding an organization that you can partner with there, uh, I do think uh, will put kind of everyone in a better position. Sage advice. Will, no pressure, but Ekana nailed it. <laughs> yeah, he did. You know, and just, just piggybacking off of what he was touching on in terms of, um, you know, what we can do on the front end and also what individuals can do, you know, with their, with their, with their personal finances. I think, you know, what Ekin is really touching on is the system itself is, is biased. It's not, there's not like one particular person or one particular company to blame because the impetus for someone to save money is they're participating in a 401k for the tax deferred growth. And since, you know, Caucasians earn 30 to 40 percent more than people of color, they have the income to save for their retirement plan. Right. And so as a result, they are learning about what they should be putting that money towards versus someone who needs the majority of their paycheck and is not contributing to their plan. And and I think, you know, the Internet has been a game changer because you know, never before could anyone interested in finance hop on YouTube and just listen to an entire semester at their leisure. And it's the same for anyone who wants to do something about, you know, making an impact as it pertains to diverse fund managers giving being given the same shot that 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 their peers are, are, are being given. Because now you can do a Google search and then right next to the company, it will say, you know, is this a veteran owned business? Is this, the, is this a minority owned business? Is this a woman owned business? It's become very easy to determine, you know, the type of organization that you that you're going to engage with. And, you know, the, the organizations and associations that support diverse managers are also starting to come to, um, you know, a, an age of maturity. So you've, we've got company you know, like associations like. National Association of Securities Professionals. Um, you know, again, I'm the Bay Area president for for that organization, and it's it's meant for women and diverse uh, fund managers and advisors. Uh, and the organization supports, you know, via whether it's writing letters or whether it's you know providing recommendations when the firms reach out and they're looking to do business with the institution. You follow. Uh, you've also got National Association of Investment Companies. They're doing the same thing for the LPs, for the folks that are in private equity on the, in, on the uh, hedge fund space. 
in, on the retail side, you've got Association of African American Financial Advisors. I'm just listing off the ones for for people that, that, that I'm involved with, right? Um, but you could rinse and repeat that, and you'd find the same for, you know, Bay Street is also in um, AIM, which is for Asian American Investment Advisors. You follow, so so there's there's tons of uh, organizations that are in place. Uh, everyone is looking to bring together uh, competent teams and, and, and put their best foot forward. And I think one thing that you might not hear is, you know, we don't want to make a mistake because a lot of times we realize that you might not get another opportunity. And I think, I don't think that that's fair. I think people should be allowed to fail without it, you know, shipwrecking the rest of their career. Um, but I do think, you know, as a diverse firm, that is one that's that's one thing that we hold ourselves to, which is why, you know, I kind of touched on the, the types of risk that we look to engage in. So, yeah, I would say, you know, look to those sort of organizations. Um, and and thankfully, it's just not as difficult as it used to be to decide who you want to work with uh, based on performance or to decide who you want to work with based on um, just diversifying how you are putting your dollars to work. Fantastic. I, I think you both gave great assignments. I, I sincerely hope that this episode is is heard by folks who um, who, who share um, our shared vision of, of this and both the financial literacy, the underserved communities, uh, young people getting uh, access to this, um, you know, across the board, uh, and then also recognizing the incredible talent and uh, in in the industry. Um, of all walks of life. And so I, I thank you gentlemen for joining me. And I, I do hope that this show is, is caught by folks who, who are able to join some of those organizations, either because they want to be in the profession or because they're already in the profession or because they just have an interest in the financial literacy of their communities and, and they want better for families in their area. So guys, thanks for being on the show. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us, Eric. Uh, it definitely means a lot to us that you brought us on, uh, and hopefully uh, we can spread this out uh, to our network as well. Fantastic. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to another episode of Don't Retire, Graduate. Please help us grow our show by subscribing to our podcast and posting comments and reviews on Apple Podcasts or other download sites. Don't Retire, Graduate is a book available in print, Kindle, and audio formats, and we now have a workbook with all the steps to build your own financial freedom plan. We'll be back next week with another installment of Office Hours and in two weeks with another engaging guest. For now, this is your host, Eric Brotman, reminding you, don't retire, graduate. From this day forward, let us begin visualizing our dreams and building our futures. Today, I implore you, don't retire, graduate. Visit our website at don'tretiregraduate.com to subscribe. And please like us and post comments on social media. Securities offered through Kestra Investment Services, LLC. Kestra IS, member FINRA, SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Kestra Advisory Services, LLC. Kestra AS, an affiliate of Kestra IS. Kestra IS or Kestra AS are not affiliated with Brotman Financial or any other entity discussed. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.